so I was coming back from Yemen um, and while we had been away, there'd been a car bomb that had gone off about probably a few hundred metres behind our house in Beirut. And I remember saying, my mum was like, are you, are you guys okay? I'm like, don't worry, mum, we're in Yemen. <laughs> like that, no one has ever said, don't worry, mum, we're in Yemen. I'm Matt Levinson. My guest today is someone who has really changed the conversation on one of the most insidious and destructive aspects of our culture, you know, that of coercive control and domestic violence. Jess Hill is an exceptional storyteller, a changemaker, a journalist, fearless and tenacious in pursuit of a story. She's rigorous, passionate and deeply affecting in the telling of them. She's collected a string of awards for it too, Walkley's, Our Watch, Amnesty, a Stellar Award, and she's done all this and continued doing it while staring down a deadly cancer. I've followed Jess's work for years, but I've never had the chance to sit down with her and understand where that incredible drive stems from. That's what this podcast is all about, talking to people that you really admire and getting below the surface, getting to know what makes them who they are. Jess, thank you so much for saying yes when I asked you to do this. Oh, my pleasure. I look at the person you are now, you know, all the things I just said and a bunch of things that we're going to get into in this conversation. Where do you think that all comes from? You know, what was your life like growing up? What, what kind of family did you get born into? A really weird one. <laughs> I think they would be the first to admit that. Um, so my, when I was, I was born on the Northern Beaches, I grew up in Avalon, um, my, I, from the age of eight, I actually lived with both my parents and my nonna, and my nonna was was an author, but it was also very um, active in like author organisations, like the Australian Society of Authors. Her partner set up the Copyright Council. You know, so we we had this kind of. I guess there was a bit of a pedigree there. Um, <laughs> and uh, but my my mum and dad, um, when I was young, they were landscapers. My mum um, was an astrologer. My dad was an actor. He then became a numerologist. We used to work at like mind body spirit festivals from the time I was like eight or nine years old. I would actually be like manning the stall. Um, and so I guess uh, my upbringing was unconventional, um, uh, very strong new age element to it. But, and I think part of what that gave me and also my brother, Joel, who um, has his own podcast, um, it gave us a real sense for charlatans, um, who was legit, who wasn't, what, who's trying to pull wool over people's eyes. And I mean, I've never really thought about, I guess, the connection between growing up in that environment and around so many people who are trying to pass off all sorts of different services <laughs> um like aura photography and you know the stuff that heaps of people loved but was just complete bullshit um and so the connection between that and me actually wanting to sort of uncover the truth as a journalist and now joel wanting to like uncover the truth behind grifters and conspiracy theorists but i think it's all very connected you get a big radar right like you get Total really radar. zoned in and you can pick it up yes and and also get zoned into where there really is truly inexplicable for want of a better word magic um you know and i, I like i would 
describe my spiritual position really as agnostic purely because of what I saw growing up that I just could not explain from people, whether they be psychics or palm readers or any number of people that we would that we would be around, where it was like, there's something happening here that I know science can't explain, and many people would say that that disregards it, but it's it's real, you know, and this person is not just bullshitting. <laughs> Whereas that person over there definitely is. <laughs> so. I guess, you know, we're still there's still so much we don't know about the world, right? You know, that whole world of quantum physics mm. and the weirdness of space and all that, you know, like there's so much about that that really defies our kind of simple logics. Um, yeah, there's a lot more that we've got to learn, right? A hundred percent. And I think and I to be honest, and I don't want to sound like Robert Murdoch here, but it humbles you in a way, like because I I really grew up thinking like I can't know all of this, but I and I guess where my the reason possibly that I became so engaged in the issue of coercive control, which is so much about what is insidious and largely unseen, is is partly because of that connection to the inexplicable um, and to the subterranean sort of stuff that happens. And I think not only was that, you know, with the, with the connection to New Age upbringing that I had, um, but also we had in our, in our family, there was definitely like I could pick up on difficulty that, you know, my mum had had growing up. There were sort of very subterranean elements of what we were dealing with there that couldn't really be identified and certainly didn't give a name to until I was sort of much older and so I think I really wanted to give people a language for an experience that they couldn't put words to because I feel like I wish someone had been able to put words to experiences I'd had growing up. You know I really felt that with your writing that it helped me understand a lot of these things and how they work in a much deeper way Um, but you also you know, growing up, you had a part on Breakers, is that right? <laughs> yes. And you know what? I never used to tell anyone about this. And, and even when it came to – I was on my way to the Central Coast, I remember, as a teenager, and I, I, I had an agent um, from a pretty early age, um, and they'd got me this audition for Breakers, and uh, which was basically like a poor man's – a poor man's E Street. I'm not even going to say a poor man's home and away because it was like – down the ladder from that, um, but um, um, and and essentially it was just it was you know but it was set in Bondi and it was on at three thirty in the afternoon and eleven thirty at night and anyway so I had this audition and I thought you know what I don't even I don't want this role um, I don't even know I'm auditioning for it but I just went as a lark and then I got it and I was cast as a middle distance runner which is hilarious because. I actually had a scoliosis. Well, I still do, but I had a scoliosis growing up. I was in chronic pain. I was not a runner, like seriously not a runner, um, and that was evident on screen. Um, and, and But, yeah, I spent, like, months as this guest star. Um, I just didn't go to school, um, which no one seemed to notice. And then, weirdly, and this is so creepy where you're like – Please don't have life imitate that kind of art. But my character died of brain cancer. Oh my god! It was, and back when that happened, it was sort of like um, I was in the last episode of the show. The show got cancelled, um, and um, and 
But I have to say, for people who were on Breakers and who may be listening, I do acknowledge the show is actually quite edgy. And part of the reason why I got cancelled may have been to do with the fact that they had a lesbian love story, not common for soap operas back then. But it was the easiest money I'd ever earned because it was just me lying flat in a hospital bed and all these people coming to cry over me. I thought, this is great. Wow. Okay. And so you were taking this all this time off to, you know, to act in this TV show. You basically took most of, was it year 11, year 12 off to go travelling around Europe with your mum? Yeah. Yeah. So essentially in, um, it was in year 11, um, so my parents split up and my mum had a speaking tour that was going to go through um, Europe, America, and we also went to the Middle East um, right around the time of the solar eclipse, which was most visible from Plymouth. Um, and anyone who's been to Plymouth will tell you that Plymouth has a lot of cloudy days, including the day of the solar eclipse that everyone had travelled there for. But anyway, um, so, so yeah, we went on this six-week journey that was funded by this, um, this woman who decided, really liked mum's work gave us like thousands of dollars to go off on this trip and we flew business class. It was just, un- it was so weird because our family was kind of that weird kind of bridge between working and like lower middle class, but we had these incredible times of abundance. Um, but, you know, as much as it was an incredible adventure, we went to Petra, all these sorts of amazing places, um, you know, it was also really difficult emotionally. My family had just split up. Um, my mum was incredibly depressed and, and really I was sort of going partly as a chaperone as a 16 year old to make sure mum was okay. Um, and look, you know, there were some perks to being that chaperone, but nonetheless, there was, I felt a lot of responsibility as a kid for making sure that my parents were sort of okay. It must've been so strange to, I mean, have to take on that responsibility, but also, I, you know, I think about all the things that you've done since then, the kind of, a, you know, the adventures that you've gone out, the stepping into spaces that I guess, you know, other people like don't step into those spaces, mm. you know, whether it's, you know, going to report in the Middle East or, you know, reporting on domestic violence and, you know, stepping out of the, just the normal way of doing things, mm. you know, in, for most other people, year 12 is a time where you're just, you're not going on family holidays, you're knuckling <laughs> down, you're doing all that kind of thing. And you, you were going on this incredible adventure and sure it came with a whole bunch of baggage as well. Mm. How much does that kind of stuff, you know, do you think that did set a framework or is that mm. also just part of the framework that you were part, oh, had no, grown up with? Definitely. I mean, my way of rebelling against my parents was to quit my agent and get a full-time job. You know, it's like, are you sure you want to do this? I'm like, yes, I want to get a job in the real estate section of the Manly Daily, you know, like, and my parents are sort of like. <gasps> um. I always think of that. Um, there was an ad from around that time where there's the two parents who are punks. I think it was a Commonwealth Bank ad, the two parents who are punks and the kid, you know, is dressed up like Michael J. Fox or something. He's kind yeah. of going off to the banking job. Yeah, 100%. I mean, that's right. You've got to find some way to carve out your own niche. I mean, that real estate job was um, very short-lived. I didn't realise that there was a locked door between the advertising and the editorial sections of the newspaper back then. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that set me up. And, you know, both my dad and my dad continues to this day to be super adventurous. Um, you know, he's approaching 70 um, and he's just started a PhD. So, like, um, and so he's been super intellectually adventurous and my mum was just 
absolutely ravenous as a traveler, you know, went across um, Afghanistan and the Middle East in her 20s, just was always up for something. And I think, um, yeah, I think just the totally unconventional nature of my, my upbringing and the fact that, you know, for better or worse, mum was always like, the HSC does not matter. You just don't need to give much thought to it. And and for me, like back then, I don't know, at 15, 16, I was full of hubris and, and ambition and I wanted, I already wanted to sort of make a mark on the world. And for me, I just felt like I didn't have time to go to university, that I wanted to go off and start this magazine that I'd had in my mind since I was like 14. You know, I saw myself as some, as some kind of like poppy king of the publishing world um, and that, you know, going to university was for normies. I read this article in the Manly Daily where you were quoted around that time and there's just this incredible sense of you at that time that comes through this like absolute urgency, um, you know, this, you know, uh, just I guess to make your way in life mm-hmm. and to make media and not to be climbing the rungs through the normal things when did you first come at, you know, you were just saying that idea of a magazine had been on your mind since you were 14. Mm. How did that come about? And, and you know, by the time you were 19, how what gave you the kind of the nerve to think, I'm just going to get this thing off the ground? <laughs> yeah, good question. Um, I think that, so I was like a weird, a bit of a weird kid, but a weird kid who had lots of friends, which was nice. Um, but, you know, like I would wear like, you know, purple stockings with gold suns and moons on it and velvet hats. And I was not, like, dressed in sports girl and, and the brand name clothing. And and I I was always intent on liking the opposite of what all my friends liked. So my friends would like Dean Kane, who played Superman, and I'd have a poster of Mel Gibson on my wall. Please don't judge me. Um, and <laughs> times have changed. Times have changed. And, um, and he was a hunk back then. Um, and, you know, I liked Billy Joel and they liked Mariah Carey, you know, so I was one of those like kind of kids who was very much like fish out of water, but I kind of reveled in it. And so when we would, you know, we obviously everyone would read Dolly and Girlfriend and then later Cleo and Cosmo. And I just couldn't, I had such a an interest in the world. And I remember the nuclear testing in, um, in the South Pacific really politicized me. And I just decided like, well, I didn't decide. I, just, I guess I just looked at women's magazines. I was like, why don't they show us anything about the world? And why is it all about blowjobs and, and high heels and how to satisfy men? Um, and so my idea was that, like, I want a magazine that's going to appeal to that popular culture interest that girls have, but also says, here, you're smart and, and here's what's going on in the world. And back then, like, you're talking 90s, you know, for me, so the way I pitched it was like, this is Cosmopolitan meets Time magazine. And for me, the the difference between that was stark because on Time magazine, you did not see women on the cover. You did not see women in the magazine, hardly ever. So like the time was so different to what it is now. Um, and so those worlds for me felt completely separate to each other and I wanted to bring them together. Yeah, you think about the huge appetite there is now for Teen Vogue and yeah. what they've done to the conversation and they sort of really sort of seem to have wrested control of the conversation. They've become a real kind of 
thought leader in a way. Yeah. Um, is that the kind of thing that you're aspiring to? Maybe, totally. maybe a, you know, a decade or two too early or like before yes. the culture was ready for it? It was definitely before the culture was ready for it and it really was before I was ready for it. You know, I could like point to lots of reasons why in the end it didn't work. I did go, I literally made my own media kits. I went, I um, booked flights to Melbourne. I went and met advertisers like in Melbourne and Sydney. I ended up securing some sponsorship from general pants it was like and I just thought I had totally made it um I ended up getting um a publisher I had an office in neutral bay like all at the age of 19 and probably in the grand scheme of things it was better that it didn't work um because well, my partner says like look you might have ended up just being really insufferable <laughs> if you just got everything handed to you on a platter and everything just worked exactly the way you wanted as it was a third cousin came on the scene, ended up kind of dating my publisher, um, said he had cancer, ended up he was a pathological liar. He did not have cancer. He ended up getting her pregnant. It was like, it was just horrible. It all fell apart in a very bad way. On your website, you start the clock on your journalism career when you started at the ABC. But I want to go just a touch earlier than that when you got on a plane to cover the US election in 2008. You know, that must have been a real gamble. You know, you you were going there without a kind of imprimatur or, you know, like as a correspondent, but sort of as a, you know, kick up your heels and be a correspondent kind of way. <laughs> make, make your own correspondence. <laughs> Tell me about that. What was it like? Yeah. Um, oh, it was incredible. Um, and it came off the back of me being a travel writer and deciding, and this is going to sound sick to so many people, but deciding that I'd had so many perks, so many free stays in like really luxurious accommodation, like I'm talking about sorts of stays in Paris where I had to review the palace hotels, which are the, like they don't have five-star hotels, they have palace hotels. So I went and reviewed those. As like a 24-year-old, I was just coming back from Club Med in Mauritius, first class, where I, and I had... When I'd got to Mauritius, so this is just before I went to the States or, you know, a few months before, I'd got to Mauritius and I really am just there to review Club Med. That's what I'm there to do. You know, that's what I'm paid to do. And I noticed as we were getting off the plane, these signs um, for AIDS and signs around poverty. And, you know, this was an island that had the, the highest density of five-star resorts in the world. And for me, like... The contrast between that was obviously stark and started me thinking like, what is going on on this island? And so much as I tried to just review the cocktails and do the yoga by the Indian Ocean, which was delightful, um, I actually spent a lot of my time hopping on buses and, and driving around Mauritius, going to homeless shelters, finding out what was happening, talking to the staff at the Club Med and finding out about their employment contracts. <laughs> and, I, and when I was coming back on the plane, I was like, you are not a travel writer. <laughs> you know, it must have felt really inconvenient to have that realisation. You know, like you're in the lap of luxury and yet you feel this itch to go and check those things out. Yeah, it's just like, but you know what? In a way, I actually was done. I'd had such an amazing ride um, and 
I was like, that's enough. Um, and, I, and back then you just think all that stuff's going to go forever and you'll get it some other way. Anyway, so, which did not happen. So, so I decided on that, on that flight, I was like, how am I going to get into journalism? Because I don't have – I'm not going to become a cadet. I don't have a uni degree. So I don't have a traditional way in. Um, but I thought, well, you know, there's a, this really consequential election coming up in the US. I could just – like we could just pitch – a blog we could do a road trip and when i say we uh, myself and my partner david we could do a road trip from like california um to chicago and file every two or three days and even though we're probably going to earn like 100 200 bucks per article we'll file it as a tax deduction at least and and maybe we'll end up equal so i so i got a job sort of just sub editing at a news limited magazine for um, a few months to save up some money and then the day that the day that i left to go to the states literally um at the airport and george w bush was announcing the global financial crisis and the Australian dollar went from I think it was over a, worth over a dollar at that stage to like I think the low was about fifty two cents. Oh my god! So like we just lit our money on fire. But we traced the campaigns of um, Barack Obama and John McCain and the rise of Sarah Palin, um, who bizarrely I saw address a crowd in Roswell, New Mexico, and it really was like a UFO landing. And we were in Grant Park um, when Obama delivered his acceptance speech. And what was what was good about that? So firstly, I mean, it cost so much money. I was in debt for years after that. Um, because So we'd mapped out the kind of issues that we were going to cover and where we were going to go. And, you know, we had this whole idea. And, of course, like abortion was, you know, in there because it was in every US election. Um, but the global financial crisis just wiped away all of our ideas. So it was a really good exercise in thinking on your feet. And um, and we had to totally re- restructure. And so we went and visited, you know, the foreclosure capital of the United States, Stockton, you know, um, north of San Francisco, um, we went over. We went into a Starbucks, and we thought we'll just ask someone if they've been foreclosed on. And we and we spoke to the the woman behind the counter, who's you know literally earning minimum wage. And we said, oh, do you know anyone here who's been foreclosed on? And she's like, me, I owned three houses. Um, <laughs> and, and you know, but it was really, I mean, it was it was horrible to see this happen across America. Um, it was seeing that seeing that total like really, I mean, misery and life-ruining consequences for people and then going to these events that Obama was doing and seeing this soaring rhetoric and hope, it was, yeah, it was such a charged moment and then seeing all the stuff around Sarah Palin, which was really like the the beginning of the Trump era. Totally. It's really the seeds of where we're at now, isn't it? And I think John McCain, you know, I mean, to his credit, later – he really understood, I guess, what had happened. And I hope that, and, I, and maybe he did, I haven't seen, but, you know, I hope he took some responsibility for his part in generating that because he was so not a Sarah Palin politician. He was pretty honest, pretty straight down the line, actually quite collegiate with Obama and certainly was, you know, going forward after the election. Um, but, you know, he made a bit of a deal with the devil um, and... To get elected and it's and you can't like once that box is open like that ferry is out and it was it was amazing actually in roswell she shows you the difference between the campaigns 
They literally, the, the McCain campaign literally set up in the old um, alien invasion museum, um, which still had some of the old slogans on the door outside. Wow. And whereas the Obama campaign's like safely tucked away in the suburbs. Yeah, you yeah. Know? You think about, you know, that job that advances do on political campaigns where they make sure that there are no <laughs> backdrops for photographers <laughs> to have convenient shots on. Honestly, it was, but it was almost like that was part of the play, you know, that, that, people could come and take a photo of this, like, whatever it was, alien invasion museum, and that, you know, that it was a part of the buffoonery of the whole performance. Um, yeah, but but really incredible. We, you know, we went right down to the the border of US and Mexico and we, we were looking at this, this burgeoning at that time, burgeoning Latino vote and how important that was going to be. And, of course, that's actually ended up in some areas being important for Trump where Latinos voted... Um, quite strongly for Trump in places like Florida. But back then it was seen as a real Democrat, you know, um, asset for the Latino vote to be getting. And I guess also a moderate Republican asset as well. Absolutely, yeah. And so we went down to, yeah, these border towns. We ended up hanging out. And I I think back then the amount of work that we – and the amount of miles that we covered for like one blog post, which now you would make 10 blog posts out of, like in one article we have – talking to these people who are advocating for Latino voters um, down in Yuma on the border. Then we've got going out to this, in the same article, we've got going out to the middle of this desert where where um, the uh, migrants are coming across um, illegally. Um, and you've got these vigilante Americans going out and like hunting migrants in the desert. And, and we're talking to them and, you know, there's like doctors from New York in camo gear going out. I mean, it's just that bizarreness that nowhere in the world replicates, you know, that, that America has. Um, but also incredible transparency. Like if that was happening in Australia, it'd be probably quite difficult to get access to like, you know, just professionals who decided to make it their job to like go across the desert and stop migrants coming across the border. Um but in America, like everyone wants to talk to you. Everyone has to have their story and they and they want to be known for it. Um, but that was a yeah, particularly heinous and disturbing um, day. But you know, and I think that I think that we we took it very, very seriously, the the whole uh, business of putting together these reports and I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves and, yeah, were I to do it now, I would do it completely differently. It must have been incredible for someone who was so hungry to kind of make their mark in journalism and had kind of had this frustration of, you know, being on these travel junkets and, you know, going and searching out these stories that no travel junket, you know, initiator wants you to be telling. No, that's right. Um, to suddenly be in this situation where you had the freedom to tell those stories and so many of those stories around you emerging, as they do in election cycles and particularly one that's as hard fought as that, uh, you you must have you came back to Australia after that mm. after that campaign I guess it is in in a way um, and you wound up at the ABC how was that something that happened seamlessly you'd done this reporting and a role opened up for you at the ABC no. or is that something that took time no absolutely not um, and in fact I actually I kept working for a little while at, at New Matilda which is where we were where we were um, logging for under the legendary editorship of Marnie Cordell who's now over at The Guardian um, and um, so I, I kind of kept working for them for a little while and that's where I probably 
more sort of cut my teeth on on reporting and then basically a transcription job opened up in um, Radio Current Affairs and a girlfriend of mine, Siobhan, she was like, why don't you have a go at it, babe? Like just, you know, at least you're in the door. And I had, as a 15-year-old, taught myself how to touch type. So I was like, yeah, I can do this. And so, yeah, I went and worked um, the AM shift to start off with, getting in at 4 o'clock in the morning. And I guess, you know, I was like so sickeningly full of initiative um, <laughs> I really wanted to make myself useful and I could see that as transcriber I was getting the overnights from the foreign correspondents for AM and I was listening to them first and so I started to like my way to be useful was like to pick up on any errors um, or sometimes things that you know maybe should really should be edited out, <laughs> or think or something that had developed in the hours since you know, and so I'd be cross checking you know, and and over time you know to cut a long story short, I think I just made myself useful in a way that that made them think yeah we should give her a shot as a researcher and um, I mean looking back from this vantage point it was really the golden days of Radio Current Affairs um, with Eleanor Hall, Tony Eastley, Mark Colvin, Edmund Roy as EP of PM. You know, I mean, it was just an amazing place to work and so much, like, energy and electricity. I look at that time and, you know, I had an immense respect for Mark Colvin at that time and the role that he was playing in this kind of unfolding moment of journalism and... You know, it's so sad where Twitter is at now mm. because right then, you know, I would see you and Mark and some of these other um, people in your team engaging with people on Twitter, particularly around the Arab Spring, identifying people who are right in the middle of the action and getting them on radio like the next day or that day. Mm. And it just felt like such an unlocking and opening up of the way the whole system worked, but also... Um, a, total change of the guard in terms of who was coming on air and how you mm. got sources. Did that feel like you were just kind of making it all up as you went along Absolutely. at that moment? Absolutely. I mean, it was – and also so exciting. Um, and also, you know, I remember by the end of that year um, contacting the Dart Centre and saying, "Have you? do you know anything about this vicarious trauma thing? Um, so because uh, it really did feel like um, we, we, we reported, we counted them in the end, we reported 200 like original stories from the Middle East um, from Sydney. So in addition to the stories that were being done by the incredible foreign correspondents who are working across that region – um, myself and Connie Aegis, we we basically developed a network using social media, but going beyond that um, in terms of like staying in touch with people. We we did a lot of legwork on the phone, on Skype, any type of secure sort of um, messaging service to basically develop a network of hundreds of people, both inside the countries affected by the Arab Spring, but also expats who had left to say Malta or to Istanbul or to somewhere where they could safely you know um, advocate and they would be our connections back inside the country and you know to the point where we literally we one we started operating on this type of instinct that I would later come to find as a foreign correspondent is much more what you have on the ground than, you know, 12,000 kilometres away. Um, I mean, you really were acting as foreign correspondents. It was just digitally, right? Exactly. And 
and there wasn't really a model for it. Andy Carvin was doing similar work for NPR in the States to great acclaim. Um, so it wasn't like we were the only people in the world doing it, but we certainly were certainly very early. And I remember one morning we thought, oh, we haven't heard from this young guy from Bahrain who was the son of a political dissident there. We haven't heard from him for a while. Why don't we give him a call and see what's going on? Because it had been just around the time that revolution was really kicking off. And, um, and we gave him a call and we found out that his father, who very high-profile dissident had an opposition leader, had just been kidnapped by the government. And we made other calls to other opposition families and found that this had been a pattern and that all these opposition families um, had experienced kidnappings that morning. And we literally got these relatives on the air in Australia to report that. We had it like eight hours before Reuters. Soon after this, you actually got the opportunity to step into this space as a foreign correspondent. In 2012, you got the call up for a new startup called The Global Mail. Can you tell me about what it was like to get that to get that invitation, to get that, was it an email that landed in? No, yeah, um, good old Monica Attard, she just called me out of the blue. Um, we were house-sitting um, our friend's house up in Ranwick and uh, I remember my partner David was in the bath and uh, I, so I got this call from Monica saying, do you like your job at the ABC? And I said, I, I love my job. And she's like, would you like to go to the Middle East? I'm like, yes, I would. <laughs> and um and essentially what she was saying was, would you like to go to the Middle East next week? Like, would you like to move there on Friday, which was six days from then? Um, so the question was, are you willing to quit your job, pack up your things and move to, at that, that time it was going to be Beirut, um, in six days? And for me, I'm like, I don't know what I was, 27? Um, I'm like, hell yeah, I can do that. So I went to see David, um, having a nice relaxing bath and I explained what had just happened and that this look crossed his face which was just like oh we just don't have a choice do we like this he bought his happen. ticket didn't he yeah 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 exactly and I guess um I mean he was halfway through a master's in psychotherapy and he's quite a bit older than me so you know he was he's 15 he likes to say 15 and a half years not 16 years older than me and so it was a bit of a thing for him to just say okay I'm gonna wait to do this because he already felt like he was doing it too late, his masters. Um, but God love him, and after some very difficult conversations, <laughs> um, he did end up spending um, a year with me overseas. Um, and that time in the Middle East was just um, unbelievable. I mean, we, we got there actually at the end of 2011, and and literally we we arrived in Cairo the day that we arrived. You know, we saw people rushing past us in downtown where we were staying towards Tahrir Square and boom, there it was kicking off. It was still kicking off even after um, President Mubarak had been toppled because there was still the problem of the military, of the police, um, who were incredibly punitive, to put it lightly, um, and and still the question of what next, you know. What so. were those relationships that you'd built up working on AM, um, PM, The World Today, were they still intact? Were those relationships, you know, people that you could tap into that you felt like you had an instant network when you landed on the ground? Absolutely. Yeah, it was beautiful, actually. There was such a um, – we just stayed in touch. We stayed in touch via Facebook. We stayed in touch via any means possible. And they – like those those people ended up touring us around, um, Tripoli taking us around during the election. Um, I even met 
this Australian, incredible Australian guy um, in the mountains of Libya that we'd been in touch with. Um, there were people everywhere who who I felt connected to. It's one thing, you know, getting on the phone or, you know, online and talking to these people and hearing their stories and setting them up to report on them. It's quite a different thing actually getting on the ground, mm. getting in a mini bus or a, you know, whatever it is that you're getting, you know, into the mountains to to meet with people who are in real danger. Did you ever feel fear going into those situations? Uh, not really. And which is strange because we did get sort of shot at. My partner got shot with rubber bullets, you know, um, and and honestly, we had a type of fearlessness that was quite strange. Not not a, not a recklessness. I felt enough fear to be sensible, um, but I there was just the the vibe was look at these people. They are laying down their lives because, and it, it might sound hokey, but this is how they represented it. They wanted freedom. They wanted the right to vote. They wanted democracy. Um, and it sounds almost sort of like that kind of hokey Americanism, you know, like, but it's it's true. This is what these people were saying. Um, and as like a foreign journalist with a foreign passport, for me, it just felt like, well, if they're willing to do that, I'm at least going to sort of walk up side by side um, because the fact is I am generally more protected than they are. Um, it is not as dangerous for me um, and it's the least I can do. Um, but I have to say that equation really started to change as the civil war started getting going in Syria. You were in the middle of this extraordinary moment. You're reporting on these huge stories. Uh, it sort of seems like the rule book is being thrown out about, you know, um, appropriate protocols around dealing with journalists. And you had this shocking seizure that you've kind of alluded to a, a bit there. Um, wh what happened? What was it like? Well, and I'm, I feel really lucky to even remember it because most people don't remember their seizures. Um, but I, so I was coming back from Yemen um, and while we had been away, there'd been a car bomb that had gone off about probably a few hundred metres behind our house in Beirut. And I remember saying, my mum was like, are you, are you guys okay? I'm like, don't worry, mum, we're in Yemen. <laughs> like that, no one has ever said, don't worry, mum, we're in Yemen. Put your mind um, at ease, mum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, um, so I was coming back from Yemen um, and I was alone because David had had to go back earlier because um, he was about to go on this tour with his mum across the Middle East. And I'd had this really long layover in um, in the UAE somewhere and um, and – I was on the plane and I just started to feel like suddenly it's like the way that I wrote it down about a week later is that my mind opened like a trap door and all the language and concepts like fell through the floor and it's like I didn't have access to anything and I and I, I knew enough to know that. And then I started shaking up against the window and just convulsing but convulsing really tightly and it got – it was very silent I remember there was a guy sitting like a couple of seats next to me and he didn't even notice. He was just on his iPad and I'm like silently convulsing against the window and starting to feel as the seconds sort of rolled on I, that I couldn't breathe and that I, I could actually die like this. And the language and concepts did sort of like f rush back 
And that's when I started to realize like, this is really bad. Um, and I don't know how this is going to end. Um, and I found something inside of myself to like throw myself across the seats and like literally onto this guy's lap. And it was like seeing that guy notice me was enough for my body to feel safe enough to go unconscious. And that's where I lost consciousness. And, um, and yeah, came to, had no idea until I felt my legs fall out from underneath that something had happened. Um, and then, you know, long story short, came back to Beirut, came back to my home in Beirut, went to the hospital, got an MRI, um, and they were like, there is something on your brain. And we had to wait for 24 hours or so to actually find out what that was. And during that time, it was like, I could be dead in three months or it could be a cyst. You know, that, that was sort of the range. And, um, and back at that point, they said, don't worry, it's, it's actually just a cyst. Um, so I was like, great, okay, just get operated on. Back to work. Back to work, you know. Um, but I was experiencing rolling seizures and seizures that were quite very, well, uh, very unusual experiences for someone who hadn't had a seizure before where I would literally visualise myself, like my, my brain floating away in my head and me like trying to yank it back with some kind of cord. You know, I, I, it was like, and these would happen as I was going to sleep. So it was terrifying going to sleep each night. And, and none of the anticonvulsant medication could stop them. And eventually I did get operated on in a, a hospital in Beirut by this amazing surgeon. Um, and, yeah, and, and I sort of was sitting up in bed thinking, literally, I mean, like, I'd just come out of ICU I was talking to David about, you know, my plans to go to Gaza. I was like, we haven't been to Gaza yet. Like, we need to make plans. And that was my thing. Like, I'm going to go. Um, yeah. And then and then everything kind of went south. Yeah. Look, I'd been a huge booster for the Global Mail at that time. You know, I think I vaguely thought I would work my way back to journalism. And I loved seeing new entrants like that, doing what felt like really great important journalism and I felt my sort of boosterism turn to outrage when I saw the way they treated you at that time you know um, making you redundant you're coming home it must have just felt like an absolute outrage it certainly did from outside but you know when I look at what you did then having gone through everything that you've gone through the seizure the brain surgery being made redundant on the back of that I think I would have fallen in a heap but you know you quickly turned around or it seemed like really quickly from outside and started filing stories for background briefing, which is kind of the investigative radio series on ABC and features for, for the monthly. How did that come about? Well, I mean, there was a, a sense to it that I, I needed to make money just to live. Like we just didn't have, we didn't have any money. Um, and, and David had to go back to university or to, you know, to his college to finish his masters. Um, so it was like, so, so, you know, he was earning some money, but I really had to go back to work. And I have to say, like, God bless some people at the ABC, particularly Chris Bullock, from, um, who was EP of Background Briefing back then, um, but also amazing people at the Religion Unit, which is where I first landed before Background Briefing. Um, and I worked with Noel DeBan, with Andrew West, Jane Jeffs, you know, um, just incredible, John Cleary, incredible people. And I was basically back to being a producer. And, and that was about what I could handle at that time. You know, to be honest, you know, like it wasn't 
so much the brain surgery that meant that I couldn't handle harder work. It was it was the absolute devastation um, from what had happened with the Global Mail that that I took a long time to recover from. Um, so they took me under their wing at um, at religion, and I um, and I worked the late night slot on Sunday nights on local radio, and um, and it was just a beautiful way to really take what I'd learned in the Middle East and apply it, but also just be part of a team that was absolutely dedicated to like niche understandings um, <laughs> of religion in Australia um, was such an education. Had had domestic violence, had family violence been something that was on your radar at all before that? I don't think so, no. My memory is that I thought this is really important. Rosie Batty was already a very strong advocate, particularly in Victoria, her name wasn't so well known around the country yet because it was before she'd been made Australian of the Year. But something was happening in Victoria that was seismic, you know, and family violence was becoming an election issue, which was unheard of. Um, so I thought, well, this is a really important story to write, but I don't know how I'm going to write 4,500 words about like a phenomenon where, like, you know, guys go home and beat their wives after they've gone to the pub on Friday night. Like, it wasn't that simplistic but it I definitely had a very narrow understanding of what family violence was um no clue of it being about power and control no clue at all and that took I'd say so I took about like seven or eight weeks to write this over Christmas of course like just working all through Christmas and January to write this piece and it really was one of the first times and this seems absurd now but it was one of the first times that a long feature had been commissioned on what is family violence, not focus on this homicide, not like focus on this, you know, this horrible event. Just tell us about the phenomenon of family violence and why it persists. So, you know, no pressure, like just unfold the entire phenomenon. Um, <laughs> but that's what I attempted to do. And it was a real, I think, just a massive turning point for me when I, A, realised how little I knew and how many of my, I guess, perceptions about it were 100, like 180 degrees wrong. Um, were there moments along that path, you know, because I felt reading those pieces that I was, it radically opened up my view and my understanding of this issue. And, you know, like I'd experienced some of that kind of claustrophobia and that pressure as a kid and hadn't really known how to, like, think about it. Were there times along that path that you just didn't feel like you felt like, no, I've, I, can't, I can't do this or, you know, like well, I've bidden off more than I – you don't seem like someone who ever thinks I've bidden off more than I can do, but were there some of those moments along the way? Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, um, when I was reporting on family court and the um, experiences of children and of protective parents um, going through family court, I uh, – I became so, I guess I felt such a responsibility to these kids particularly who had often, you know, been ordered and were still ordered into the care of people who terrified them. Look, the, the penny drop moment that I talk about in the beginning of the book um, where I, where I realised that my mind was not even positioned in the, in the right place to comprehend um, domestic abuse was when I was um, sitting at the fo the family violence helpline safe steps um, 
which last year received 65,000 calls. And having spent now a, a few afternoons there for a few hours each, the nature of those calls are, are severe, a lot of them, and alarming, you know, and the levels of control that are being described, often the levels of violence, access to guns. I mean, sitting in that call centre was extremely eye-opening. It felt like you were just standing at the kind of gaping more of this crisis. And, um, but where I was sitting at that, you know, I think it was three weeks into researching the monthly piece, all I could think of is hearing these women call up and talk about what they were experiencing and, and hearing one, one woman in particular call up who'd called a few times, my question to the counsellor was, do you ever get frustrated that a woman, after she's called time and again, she's, she's left but then she's gone back? Do you get frustrated about that? Um, and she just looked me square in the eye and said, no, I get frustrated that he promised not to abuse her and then chose to do so again. And in that moment, not only it's it's why I just I am so addicted to the family violence sector because they just tell you straight up <laughs> in no uncertain terms when you've got things wrong. Um, but coming from a you know genuinely a place of love, um, in that moment, I just realised I don't even have him in frame. I'm not even looking at him. I'm not even wondering about why she would do it. I'm just presuming that she's silly and so these tropes are so ingrained and it's so important for people to not feel guilty for having those tropes on board but to feel curious about why they had that instinct and how they can change that you had switched gears from doing these great you know features for the monthly for the background briefing you know, in a way, you were stepping into those like a normal journalist in a way, mm. you know, do eight weeks on a project mm. and you were offered this book deal mm. um, to knock away the book in six months and, you know, and probably thinking, you know, this is just going to be another step along this process and then move on back mm. to climate or Definitely. Sun Seekers or whatever it was. At what point did you realise it was, you know, this is going to be kind of, a, you know, in a way, it's a life's work, right? Mm. I think it probably when I was in month four and reading like analyses of power by Foucault, um, and I thought this is going to take a lot longer. Um, but but actually, really, I think you know I I could have just built on the on the base that I'd already established, where I'd I'd done several long essays and radio features during 2015 about domestic and family violence, looked at the nature of perpetration, looked at family court, looked at the phenomenon more generally, and I could have just bundled something together. But this was the first book that had been commissioned for a general audience about family violence in Australia. And at that point, there actually wasn't much around the world about that that wasn't sort of for an academic audience or, you know, too detailed for the general public to really be interested in um, or very specifically about types of abuse for victim survivors. Um, so I again felt this huge weight of responsibility like this has to be seminal and it has to do the job of changing people's perceptions in this country and, and giving the movement another surge of energy. But it also has to be done in collaboration with victim survivors, with the sector, and I need to go back and get educated. And what I found, I guess, probably around the six-month mark was that, like, I don't know shit about this. Like, 
I've spent a year looking into it and every day I'm still having massive penny drop moments. I'm also extremely angry about this and and I'm I'm finding out, you know, things about feminist history that I'd never sort of bothered to learn before and if I write from this place of anger, I'm going to write a polemic which has its place and other people write polemic, but I wanted this book as I said, I wanted it to be seminal. I wanted it to speak as directly to victim survivors as it did to magistrates, to police, to politicians, and even hopefully to some people who used violence and control who might want to actually think more deeply about their behaviour. I wanted it to speak to everyone. And I guess that knowing the task at hand or setting that task um, meant that I needed to do so much more work and also really bring in my partner, David, um, who was by then a qualified psychotherapist, super useful, um, and and also a really talented editor who had always edited my work. We started to, I mean, a lot of this book, I unfortunately worked quite a lot in isolation and felt very lonely for, for large um, sections of it. But there were some really critical parts that David came and played a big role in, particularly in the chapter on shame and on patriarchy, um, but also, you know, editing every line to make sure that it really was speaking to all those different audiences. And where I might get kind of really caught up in some really horrific detail that I thought was really important to include, David could be that sort of clear eye and say, yeah, the readers had enough now, you know, <laughs> now you're just sort of hitting them over the head with it. And, and I did go through that phase where it's like, well, they should eat their vegetables, you know, like I'm eating broccoli every day writing this book, you know, like, can't they just take it? And it's like, that's not how this works. Cause they can put down this book and go and, you know, watch sex in the city. Like, <laughs> you know, I, when I think about that project, I imagine it like a PhD, you know, like people go into a PhD and they're full of passion and excitement and, mm. you know, the energy of it. And by the time they get to the end of it, it's just kind of like, <laughs> oh finish, God. finish. Yeah. Um, was it like that? Yes. Um, <laughs> but also I was, um, I was utterly obsessed. Like I was absolutely on a mission. When it, when it came out 2019, what did you expect? You know, what, what, what was your kind of best case scenario for this book? Best case scenario was like total world domination. Um, <laughs> no, I mean like my best. I believe that. Yeah. My, my best case scenario was that at the time I thought if this just becomes really important um, to people who've experienced family violence and to those who are working with it, I'll be really happy. Um, uh, you know, it's interesting looking back. I don't think – I think a lot of um, booksellers but also um, larger book retailers like Booktopia, I don't think they knew what to do with it. So there'd be booksellers who would absolutely like put it right up front. It was very particular who would really foreground it and who just sort of thought this is not going to take off. It's about family violence. Who's going to buy this? So like there was no big signing at Booktopia. There was no none of that. Um, and I have to say, I mean there was – there were few mainstream media reviews um but there was a lot of podcast interviews the drum god bless them ran a whole episode um on the book you know including people who'd been um who'd been featured in the book so there was this like bits and pieces of interest 
But it wasn't, it really wasn't until I won the Stella in 2020, like literally the month after lockdown started, that it was like publicity for the book just, it was like the book had just been released. And suddenly there was mainstream reviews. It was just getting so much attention. I honestly could not even keep up with the amount of attention the book got that year. And it went, I think the week of the Stella, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it sold like 6,000 copies in that first week. You know, and that, and I think probably it had sold about that many in the like nine months that had been out. <laughs> I love that as a metric for the Stella. You know, yeah. like that's why an award like that is really important. Mm. And because they they support not just the winner, they support the shortlist, the long list. You know, they put a lot of energy into publicising their authors. Um, and in that way, it's for me, it's a truly feminist prize because yes, there is prize money that goes to one person, but there is prize money that goes to the shortlisted authors. But more importantly, there is prestige and attention that goes to those authors. And, um, and they, they put a lot of energy into doing that and to sustaining that community over time. The book had a huge emotional impact on me when I read it. You know, sometimes I could hardly bear to keep on reading. You know, I remember one story kept me up for the good part of a night, just just could not stop thinking about it. And I had the same experience after listening to The Trap. You know, there was, you know, one one story, um, the story of uh, these two kids, Liam and Lily, that had me just crying my eyes out on the way to a work meeting. And, you know, it was like very awkward rocking up to a work meeting with, you know, red eyes. Um, but these stories are stories that deal with, you know, the cruelest of behaviour between people and, and also this just truly deep dysfunction in our systems of governance, um, the police, the family court. And yet somehow, you know, I can't keep, I can't stop reading. I can't stop listening. I Mm. have to stay in there. And that's like, that's an incredible achievement. You know, these are places where people don't want to go. And that's why they're so um, intransigent because, because none of us want to look in at those places. Yeah. You know, when I reached out to you to ask you if you would do this and you responded with an enthusiastic yes and I was just so buoyed at that because I I fundamentally basically thought, you know, you've got a lot of important things to do with your time. Even just in that short period since you agreed, you've been through multiple rounds of chemo. As you said, you've been speaking, at you know, to um, people in the family violence sector, people, you know, conferences, events right around the country – continuing that impact through society how do you maintain that enormous passion and drive to make a change on these matters when you know you are dealing with things that i think for lesser people would knock them off their feet you know (laughs) how do you how do you keep how do you keep on with this i guess because if i didn't i would just go to seed um and, and honestly like there's really nothing more rewarding than going and speaking at a community event or to sector and having someone coming up and saying, I feel like you just spoke about my life and you have made it easier for me to deal with what I went through. Or, you know, I'll get an email that says, like one one case, for example, I got an email from um, these child protection workers saying that they'd been they'd been dealing with a mother who had gone through significant domestic violence it was look their concern was that like she seemed really paranoid she didn't seem to be um, fit to parent and it was going down a really dangerous path of child removal and then they happened to watch the SBS series adaptation of the book 
um, and saw in that series that surveillance equipment was commonly used. Um, so, you know, everything from like apps in phones to recording devices in cars and homes and in laptops. And they went from, by understanding that and by understanding what coercive control actually was, they went from seeing that mother as paranoid to someone who was actually being protective. Um, and instead of dismissing her concerns about being bugged, um, which she very well could have been, they said, where would you like to meet? So she nominated their cars because they're like, they won't be bugged. And they arranged visits through third parties. And then as that trust built, they moved her interstate, set her up in a refuge with the kids. She sent them a message recently saying, you know, the kids are in school, everyone's happy. Funnily enough, as soon as she'd actually achieved safety, the mental health symptoms disappeared. Um, and she said, you know, you saved my life um, to these caseworkers. And for me... That's both a great email to receive because it's like, oh, thank God. Like, <laughs> thank God, you know, that when you are educated on coercive control as, as people dealing directly with it, you make better decisions, more protective decisions. But also how horrible that that was just by accident. And just this total serendipitous. Exactly. And it's like, <laughs> and that's why I keep going, you know. And even when, I mean, even when I'm, yeah, cognitively impaired through chemo, just do what I can to keep getting that message out there because the in real time impact it has is so tangible. And in a lot of our work, and particularly as journalists, I remember talking to Anthony Lowenstein about this years ago. If you go into journalism and you try to do these works of social justice journalism on the basis that you will change things, it can be incredibly dispiriting um, because often things don't change and you just report the same thing over and over and over and nothing happens. This is one of the few areas I've reported on where I see change happening in the room. At that very moment, I see a magistrate's eyes open in a way that tells me they've just had a massive penny drop moment themselves. You know, I see police key on and understand why that victim is being such a nuisance, you know, and, and not leaving and not following through with charges. You just see people realise and you're like, the power of education for this particular subject is gigantic and it's really addictive. Jess, it's been so great to have this conversation. Before I wrap up, I want to ask you three really quick questions. What's keeping you up at night? Well, at the moment, a sense of urgency around coercive control. We've got laws being operationalised in New South Wales. I literally was, so very, very literally was up at 4am the other morning thinking about how to design a community roadshow to educate people all around New South Wales about coercive control in advance of these laws coming in. Um, How do I get funding for that? How can I, you know, really get... A, a, a position in this space which is not just around journalism but really around advocacy and how can I make that sustainable? Who else should I be speaking to? One is um, Annabelle Daniel from Women's Community Shelters who's just an absolute innovator in getting um, shelters built for women. Another is um, Melanie Greblo um, who's just started this incredible um, um, NGO, like not-for-profit around getting victim survivors employed. Um, oh, the list is just honestly just endless it sounds really good though i really um would love to speak to them so i'm going to need to have an intro after this jess it has been so great um to speak to you today if people want to see your work where are you pointing them to 
Well, my website is just is really parlous. But anyway, it is um, jesshill.net. I'm also quite a lot more present on LinkedIn now, weirdly, um, because I quit Twitter. And um, and God knows I've got to have somewhere to spend my time. Um, and, uh, so, and, and also Instagram, I'm sort of present, but I'm certainly accessible um, through all of those platforms. And you should definitely, if you're listening to this and you want to know more and you haven't read the book, you definitely need to read that. Look what you made me do. And the podcast, The Trap, the series on SBS, the adaptation of the book. There have been a couple of series on SBS now, haven't there? Yeah, there's so um, Asking For It was a series we just did this year on consent. And I also wrote um, a quarterly essay on Me Too and how it's been changing Australia. This was produced and hosted by me, Matt Levinson. If you haven't heard the previous episodes, I really recommend you dig back in. My conversation with Megan Loder is one I'd recommend. She founded FBI Radio. She's been a game changer in the worlds of music and media. And it was, you know, a funny and sometimes really raw conversation that I'm still thinking about. Um, let me know what you think. I'm Matt underscore Levinson on Twitter and Instagram on LinkedIn as well because, you know, <laughs> that's a place that we're at now. Um, if you like what you've heard, please hit subscribe. Thanks so much, Jess. Thank you, Matt. I might have a story for you.